Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Worldwide Tax Daily. This week, interpreting the TCJA. Among the many changes to the tax code made by the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was a new deduction for pass-through businesses. Section 199A raised many questions about what businesses and what income would be eligible for the break. On August 8th, we got the IRS's take on the law with new regulations interpreting the provisions. Here to guide us through some of the many issues that have been addressed, and some that remain, is Tax Notes Today legal reporter Eric Yauch. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. Uh, Why don't you start with an introduction to uh, what is Section 199A? What does it do? Sure. So in order to provide some parity for the 21% corporate income tax rate under the TCJA, um, Congress implemented a 20% pass-through income tax deduction. And it's not as simple as the corporate income tax cut. So in order to take advantage of 199 cap A, first, it applies to everyone up to certain income thresholds, 157500 for someone filing single, and then 315000 for someone filing jointly married. Once you're above those income thresholds, certain industries are completely out, okay? Law, accounting, healthcare, they cannot take advantage of it. And of the ones that can, they're limited in their 20% deduction by wages paid to employees and unadjusted basis in property. And so with all those limitations, there's a lot to unpack and there was a lot of uncertainty. What were some of the main questions that... Uh practitioners were raising about that they had for this law? What, what were they looking for the IRS to answer? Well, from the top, you know, they, they listed businesses that couldn't take advantage of this, okay? So those were listed in um, prior code section that still exists, um, section 1202E3 capital A, that included fields like consulting couldn't use this, law, accounting, and then they had a provision in there where if the reputation or skill of one or more employees was the principal asset of the business, that income wasn't subject to 199 cap A. And so that left a lot of questions unanswered. And people were kind of worried that that reputation or skill limitation would apply to, let's say, a mechanic who was well known for being great at his job, and then he couldn't use it now, right? Or like a hairdresser, let's say, someone that's great at cutting hair. That's why they get clients in the first place. It is the reputation or skill that brings clients in. So if that was read broadly, I think people were just really concerned that this thing could be not very useful. Another issue that kept popping up is like people conduct multiple trades or businesses, and they were thinking, how do we group these activities? Are they going to use the grouping activities in Section 469 in the passive loss rules, or are they going to come up with their own regime? And because this applies to pass-throughs, there's a limitation on the unadjusted basis of property immediately after acquisition. Well, it raises questions because in partnerships, you have Section 734B, Section 743B. You have these weird basis adjustments when certain events happen. And people wondered, how is that going to apply to what's called the UBIA limitation? And so the IRS and Treasury had a lot on their plate. And I think that their regulations addressed almost all of those questions, but questions still remain, though. Now, on the last episode of this podcast, uh, I talked to Jonathan Curry, a uh, reporter with Tax Notes today as well, and he talked about the role of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs in the Office of Management and Budget and their review of Treasury regulations that were coming out under the TCJA. How did that figure into uh, the review of the 199 Cap A rules? That, like, a lot of that is still up in the air, but what we were kind of thrown off by was the fact that the RegInfo website listed the 199 Cap A regulations as being separated into three categories, computational, 
definitions, and then anti-abuse. And so we saw on OIRA website on July 23rd that only the computational portion had been sent to OIRA. So we were wondering, is it, you know, because they only have 10 days for TCJA, we were wondering, are they going to be out within 10 days? We were wondering, are the other portions, like anti-abuse and definitional portions, are those also going to be reviewed by OIRA? Or will they just review computational and then lump them in as one big reg package? And that's what they ended up doing, one big reg package. But for about two weeks there, we were all a little bit confused. All right, so now let's get into what we did get from the reg package. What's, what's the biggest takeaway from the new regulations? I think the biggest takeaway is the IRS did a pretty good job and it's taxpayer favorable in terms of answering a lot of the questions. I mean, you have to feel for them like this was kind of thrown at them and there are a lot of unanswered questions. Generally, it's been well received. But I think as people work through some of the examples and apply them to real life scenarios, I think there are still quite a few lingering questions. But these are only proposed. They're going to take comments. They're going to consider comments and they can make them final and incorporate some of those comments as well. So we're not done yet. But I think they, they tried to answer quite a few questions. Uh, how did the answer come down on the question of reputation and skill? They made that very broad, and people were very, very happy about that. So what they basically said was, like, it would have to be someone like a household name, someone that's receiving, like, endorsement income because they're they're so famous. And so your hairdresser, your your mechanic, your lawnmower repairman, they're, they're fine. They don't have to worry about that. So people were, were pretty happy. What did they do on the trader business definitions that uh, people were concerned about? Yeah, so some IRS officials at the ABA meeting in May hinted that Section 162, that definition of trader business, would play a role in this, and that's what they ultimately did. They incorporated the trader business definition in 162, which I think people thought made sense. Um, you're looking at continuity and regularity of the activities. But some practitioners recently have been concerned with how that would apply to rental income because – there's been a lot of litigation on whether renting is a trader business, and I think it's a particularly big problem if you're looking at a triple net lease where the tenant is on the hook for insurance and taxes and other things like that. The case law seems to suggest that a triple net lease is not a trader business, and that becomes a bigger issue when you look next to the grouping activities. Let's say that you have 25 pieces of property. This came up in a webcast yesterday. If each property is owned in a separate LLC, you would have multiple trader businesses, but you, they'd be in separate entities. So would you look at just the trader business in multiple entities, or would you look at each entity separately to determine if there's a trader business? And if some of those properties are on a triple net lease basis and others are not, that could raise some questions on whether you really have a trader business of renting property. So I think issues like that are going to continue to crop up. Now, I know there had been some discussion before these regulations came out about concerns that, let's say, a, a law firm where the lawyers are not allowed this deduction over a certain level of income might find ways around those rules? Did they address that concern? They did. They they put in an anti-abuse rule where basically if there is common ownership 50% or more and you spin off, let's say, real estate into a separate entity and rent back, there's, you know, if that separate entity, if 80% of its income is coming from a commonly controlled parent, which in a law firm case, that would be the case. So they put in rules to block that. Some practitioners have said that there are ways to get cute. Let's say, like, because both law firms and accounting firms are barred, let's say that they form a partnership and they bring in a third-party investor and then they spin off real estate and then they pay that separate entity rent on the real estate. If they don't own it more than 50%, the law firm, the accounting firm, and the investor, then theoretically they could get away with that, but we haven't seen that yet. It's just one possibility. 
What sort of actions do the regulations take on the uh, definitions of industries that are uh, restricted from the uh, deduction? Um, well, take consulting, for example. It's defined broadly, and I think people were a little bit caught off guard on that. So if you read Marty Sullivan's analysis from, from August 13th, he said, a lot depends on how the individual providing services is compensated for advice. If your advice is provided in the course of selling products or other services and you receive payments for those products or services, you're not a consultant. But if you are paid solely for the provision of advice, you are a consultant. So there could be opportunities for gaming there. We'll see how this kind of shakes out. But that's a very, very broad definition. And contrast that with the reputation or skill definition, which was pretty narrow. And people were pretty happy about that. So I think as people work through this in clients' call, they'll have more questions on whether they can take advantage of this or not. What approach do the regulations take to financial services? Financial services is defined very narrowly, and what they did was they actually excluded banking, and this has caused some pretty big reaction in the tax community. Um, some people have said that it's completely ridiculous that banking is not considered financial services, but others say it actually makes sense because for the definitions of businesses that can't take advantage of 199 Cap A, they pulled from Section 1202E3 Capital A, Banking is listed in 1202E3 capital B. It's in a different section. So people said it actually made sense that banking wasn't considered financial services based on the statutory language they relied on in coming up with these businesses that couldn't take advantage of it in the first place. All right, moving on to another area. You mentioned earlier that uh, in some cases the deduction will be limited by the amount of wages paid by a company. What did the regulations have to say about to, to clarify how that wage limitation would work? It's a good question, Dave. People were really concerned because it's actually pretty common to have a third-party professional employer organization pay your employees for you, and for non-tax reasons. So people wondered if those payments from third-party PEOs, is what they're called, would count towards the wage limitation. And the IRS and Treasury, in the proposed regulations, they followed what they did for the old Section 199. And they allow those payments to count generally towards W-2 wages. And people were pretty happy with that. All right. The, the other limitation that they have is on the uh, unadjusted basis in property, I believe that was. What did the regulations do uh, in that area? So that's pretty interesting. What they said was basis adjustments for certain partnership, like 734 and 743, those don't count. So those are out. But what's interesting is how they treat something, let's say, in like a like kind exchange. Okay. Let's use an example where... I purchased property for $100,000, okay? I can depreciate that property over time, and as I depreciate that property, my basis goes down. Now, in a like-kind exchange, I can exchange that property still worth $100,000 for other property worth $100,000, okay? So now I have this new replacement property worth $100,000, and for the UBIA, which is what we call the basis limitation here, on a like-kind exchange, you actually have to use your depreciated down basis in your old property. So now, if I kept my old property, my UBIA would be $100,000, okay? I exchanged it, and with this new property, now I have to use my adjusted basis on my old property, $40,000, as my UBIA, which people were pretty surprised with. What sort of uh, outcomes would that result in? What, what might that do to a taxpayer? Um, it's definitely going to call into question how they want to plan in the future, and um, especially, like, you know, I guess if you look at the partnership adjustments, the 743s and 734s, and the like kind of exchange issues, you're going to have a lot of questions. In a separate example, there's an example of a sole proprietor that owns property, okay? And 
they depreciate that property over time. But for UBIA purposes, the unadjusted basis is the, let's say it's $100,000 and you depreciate it down to $40,000, like in our prior example, okay? That depreciated basis doesn't count for UBIA. So you would have $100,000 of UBIA, okay, for the life of that property. So your basis, if you formed an S-corporation, would no longer be $100,000. It would be your depreciated amount of $40,000 just because you contributed it to a new S-corporation. People were pretty surprised about that. So if you take into account like-kind exchanges and the basis treatment of that, or if you put property into a new entity after you've depreciated it, in the partnership, 734 and 743 stuff is now out. I think people are going to really have to take time and plan carefully on how they're going to organize things in the future. It sounds like these regulations have answered a lot of the questions that practitioners had. Are there still extra questions out there that haven't been addressed? Um, yeah, I think as people go through this, the trader business definition, especially with the new grouping rules, people were wondering if for grouping purposes they were going to rely on the grouping rules in Section 469. They didn't. They said that, you know, for 469, the passive loss limitation rules were concerned with how much participation you have in an activity and for 199 cap A purposes, that's not really the issue. It's not how much participation you have. It's whether you have a trader business. So they said, you know what, we're going to come up with our own new framework. So now we have new grouping rules. And I think if you take into account the trader business rules, the definitions of specified service trader businesses, UBIA issues, I think as you take a look at this holistically, big picture, I think there are going to be a lot of questions that pop up over the next few weeks as practitioners digest this. All right. What are next steps? Uh, when can we hope to see these finalized? Um, I'm not entirely sure on a time frame for when they are, will be finalized, but I know that um, even starting this week, people are starting to walk through stuff, work on comment letters. They're holding webcasts and conferences to kind of see what other people are thinking on this before they can submit comments that the IRS and Treasury should consider. So it's starting to move along pretty quickly because it applies for tax year 2018. And so those returns are due March 2019. Well, Eric, this has been great. Uh, thank you for being here. Thanks, Dave. And now, coming attractions. Each week we preview commentary that will be appearing in the next issue of the Tax Notes magazines. We're joined by Executive Editor for Commentary, Jasper Smith. Jasper, what will you have for us? In Tax Notes, Professors Philip Harmelink, James Hasselback, and David Manry argue that the increase in the standard deduction doesn't offset the suspension of miscellaneous itemized deductions for individual taxpayers under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Also, Scott Schwartz examines what happens when a grantor dies before the end of the grantor-retained annuity trust term and what taxpayers should take into account when creating the trust. In state tax notes, Peter Faber and Alyssa McLaughlin discussed New Jersey's new mandatory combined return regime, while Hayes Holderness discusses the preemption of states' workarounds to the federal, state, and local tax deduction cap. And in Tax Notes International, Oliver Tridler examines the OECD's recent publication of guidance on the approach to hard-to-value intangibles. You can read all that and a lot more in the August 20th editions of Tax Notes, State Tax Notes, and Tax Notes International. That's it for this week. You can follow me on Twitter at TaxStew, that's S-T-E-W. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play to make sure you get the next episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com backslash products. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. 
Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.